Tavadish, welcome back to the Escalation 1985 podcast. I am your host, Peter Bell, also known as Peter Bell in the Discord. Joining me today is Lucas Parham. Hello, uh, I am Fallout 2077 in the Discord. And our special guest, John Antal. Hello, Dobro Dia. So, John, do you kind of want to introduce uh, who you are and about your military career and your experience in the gaming industry? Yeah, I'd be happy to. Thank you very much for uh, having me on the show today. It's really a great honor. Um, Absolutely. I've been blessed in my life that I was able to uh, be a soldier for 30 years and then spend 15 years in the video game industry. Um, my life as a soldier was amazing, and um, I believed that uh, every day I spent with American soldiers was one of the best days of my life. Uh, I was blessed that I was able to uh, see uh, many things happen. I was part of uh, the U.S. Uh, Army effort in Germany during the Cold War and also in Korea. And uh, I served as a tank and cavalry officer. I'm an airborne ranger and uh, graduate of West Point, uh, the uh, Command and General Staff College at uh, Fort Leavenworth, Kansas, and the Army War College. And I had senior positions in the U.S. Army uh, from uh, all the way from uh, platoon to uh, core level. I was a core G3 of the 3rd Armored Corps at Fort Hood, Texas. So um, I've had a lot of experience with tanks and combat units, and I had a chance to train a lot of American soldiers and be in some uh, uh, you know, dark and deadly places that um, I learned a lot of leadership from. So it's been a blessing for me. After I retired, though, from the Army, I ended up in uh, getting a job... Uh, Microsoft called me. They, uh, they asked me to uh, uh, be a part of uh, an effort that was going on here in the Dallas, Texas area. And um, I ended up working with a uh, video game company, Gearbox Software, and uh, was able to uh, play a major role in one of the games uh, called Brothers in Arms. Now, every game is a huge team effort, uh, and it takes lots of great people to do it. And I was a small part of that. So it was a it was a wonderful experience for me to uh, uh, talk about World War II, and, and that's what we did in Brothers in Arms. It was a story about American paratroopers, uh, very similar to the um, HBO Band of Brothers uh, series. And it was historically accurate, and that is one of the things that I really like about Escalation 1985, is that it uh, is going to be an accurate and fun uh, depiction of a what-if, and that what-if was something that I actually had a chance to live through. Absolutely. Yeah. And uh, and I think Luke and I can both, you know, say that, you know, we both are definitely younger, significantly more younger than you are. But we did play Brothers in Arms Hell's Highway as uh, as young lads. So, yeah, well, you'll be surprised how fast the years go by, guys. So so cherish your youth <laughs> while you have it. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Um, so actually, I'd just love to say uh, I, I absolutely loved uh, Brothers in Arms Hell's Highway. It was one of my favorite games when I was younger. Um, so to be able to meet someone, uh, from the team that helped work on that, it's, it's really cool, honestly. Um, well, thank you. Cause, uh, yeah, I, I mean, I, I, a I, lot of good memories with that game. Yeah. It's very nostalgic. Um, I, I, I actually had the, the collector's edition with the little, uh, action figure the or, you know, the yes. 101st, uh, or were they the second? God, I can't remember. I'm pretty sure they're. No, it was the hundred and first airborne. That's what I thought. Okay, yeah. cool, cool. It was um, all about the five hundred, about the five hundred and second parachute infantry regiment. That's right. That's uh, right. And the soldiers of uh, of a unit that was a part of that regiment. But uh, 
we were trying to do several things with the game, and I think that Gearbox was very successful in doing it. They were telling a really dramatic story and making fun gameplay at the same time and making it very interactive. So I believe the game was interactive, was very memorable, and um, I think that uh, it was interesting at the time because there were a lot of other games that were a little over the top, and we were trying to keep it as historically accurate as possible as, as possible as any video game can be. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. That's what we're trying to do. I mean, we're trying to balance right. authenticity with with accuracy, essentially. I mean, and authenticity with gameplay as well. There's a bunch of different factors that, and it's all just pretty much a balancing act. You don't want to go too far on the end of each spectrum. You know, you see, you know, I don't know if you've seen the new Call of Duties or Battlefields that have coming been coming out recently. Yeah, of course and they're I just, have. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. It's 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 a mess. It's you know. It, as, as fun as they are, I don't really, you know, respect the fact that they're completely blowing, you know, it's not a good representation. They call, they, they claim it's a World War II, shoot, an authentic World War II shooter, but, but it's, it's not, not, you know. Yeah. It, well, I mean, the most important thing about games is, number one, they need to be fun. But when they put you in a world and they say that the world is authentic, you enjoy exploring that world. And if it's historic, you want it to be correct. Uh, you wouldn't play Red Dead, Red Dead Redemption uh, and find that suddenly you have a laser uh, you know, pistol you know, versus yeah. a six-shooter. That would break the reality of the game. So what's important is to have a fun game, but also look at authenticity. Not realism, but authenticity. Yes, and the difference, And the difference between realism and authenticity is something that I think Escalation 1985 is getting right. Well, thank you. <laughs> yeah, we've we've had our entire team working very hard to try to achieve exactly what you're trying to, to, you know. Yeah, I've to, been very impressed. I've been very impressed with what I've seen so far. Well, thank you. Yeah, it's you know, and especially with the, things right now are going very well for us. We're well on our way to be able to release and you know, like you said, uh, an authentic, not realistic shooter. You know. It, and, yeah. you know, and there's a sense of fantasy in it. I mean, obviously, you were there. The Soviets never attacked you, but there was that threat. And that's, you know, why we have you on here today as well, to ask you some questions. Like, how did it feel that, you know, being in the folded gap, being in on literally the Iron Curtain that separated the East and the West, the thought of thinking, oh, I could be attacked by the Soviets, and I'm at a position where I'm responsible for a lot of people. And, you know, it, I'm sure there were a lot of emotions going through your head. And, you know, we'd love to kind of ask you questions about that if you're all right with that. Absolutely. Uh, and by the way, I don't think it's uh, so much of a fantasy, although that's a correct term, it is more of a what if, a, um, yeah. a count counterfactual history. You know, Alter there's, yeah, alternate history. There's a lot of this alternate and counterfactual history now that is playing. Uh, and you see it on, uh, for instance, um, Man in the High Castle and other areas. And it's Absolutely. fascinating because people have always the question, what if? You know, you come to a fork in the road and you take one or the other. Well, you know, you yeah. met this you met this girl and you, you ended up marrying her. What if you'd met the other girl? And, you know, it, all of these questions go through everyone's exactly. mind. The butterfly effect, if you will. So this is an interesting, very interesting story. And it will resonate with an awful lot of people because uh, the Cold War was a, uh, a dangerous time. It was a time when... Um, Mankind could have ended itself, and we did not. So we have a lot to be proud of uh, across the board on both sides, that we did not 
uh, let our passions, which ran very high sometimes, overtake our wisdom. And that's a very difficult thing uh, for anyone to do. It's a difficult thing to do when you have the ultimate power as both the Soviet Union and the United States did in 1985 and during the Cold War. And it is a lesson for us today. So I'm very excited about the game because what I think it does is it not only gives you a fun gameplay, but it also puts that question, that what if in your mind, and you realize that it's very important uh, that we, uh, we learn how to dampen down some of the, the tensions that we have and that we think about the longer uh, situation of survival on this planet and getting along. Absolutely. And yeah, with the way things are looking now, I mean, it seems almost like we're in another Cold War, you know, with the amount of tension that is kind of starting. You can kind of, you're starting to see, you know, with the, you know, treaties being... There's no doubt that uh, we're moving into another period of tension. Um, It's about power and uh, it's about uh, the, uh, the ability of some people to maintain power even when their populations have no liberty and, and no freedom. Uh, Absolutely. It's an, it's an interesting uh, challenge that we face uh, because right now uh, the majority of the world uh, lives under uh, autocracy, under totalitarian dictatorship. And you say, how can that be true? Well, um, just add the populations of Russia and the populations of China together. But yeah. you see, these are very good people in many cases who care about their own countries and are very proud to be Chinese or proud to be Russian. Our challenge is, is that we don't end up fighting for nationalism, that we in fact end up uh, learning to uh, get along together as human beings. And uh, Maybe this Absolutely. game will be a part of that. Maybe this game can be an opportunity for people to say, wow, that would be so horrible that it would not be worth contemplating. Absolutely. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Um, and to kind of go with that and to answer some of these questions with a more specific specifics with that we have sure. questions that uh our patreons asked you and as well as other people from outside the patreon so i thought i'd just start at top of the list with uh optimat who has the first question so he asks where do you think Nodu's perception of the warsaw pact was tactically inflexible comes from we've all heard the talks of rigid massed armies which are only capable of achieving victory from a position of massive numerical superiority but what were the primary reasons that made Western military thinkers arrive at that conclusion? Yeah, this is a very good question. And one of the reasons that I can answer this question with some authority is not only did I serve in the Cold War and study uh, the opponent and know his tactics and read his doctrine, but I also speak uh, a little bit of Russian. So I was able to read some of it in Russian. And um, uh, one of the great honors that I had was I was at the U.S. Army Top Gun School in the early 1990s, and uh, I served uh, at, it's called the National Training Center, and I served as the uh, chief of staff of a a Soviet-style regiment that fought every unit that was in the continent of the United States uh, U.S. Army. So uh, units from all over uh, the United States came to uh, the Mojave Desert at Fort Irwin, California, and I had a chance to, uh, to be the enemy sparring partner for them. And our job was to give them the toughest fight that they could ever imagine. So not only did I study Soviet doctrine and tactics in order to do that job, but I was also taught by several Soviet defectors who were amazingly, uh, you know, smart, genius, if you will, at their trade. I mean, these gentlemen really knew how to maneuver 
uh, platoons, companies, battalions, and regiments. So, While using the Soviet doctrine. Yeah, so when you look at the okay. Soviet doctrine and you look at the Warsaw Pact, uh, when some people say, and again, this is a gross generalization, that it was inflexible, uh, in some ways it was. You see, um, when you have a professional army versus a conscript army, there's only so much the conscripts are able to do within the short time that they have inside the military. And when you look at the, the, uh, the Soviet army of the Cold War in the 1980s in particular, um, there's not much of a non-commissioned officer corps. Uh, it's basically officers, uh, and uh, there are sergeants, but uh, the sergeants don't have a lot of authority. And uh, the, um, the army is different than uh, the army of, uh, let's say, the United States or West Germany, because uh, there was an East and West Germany then, uh, right. the French or the British. You know, so um, the, the inflexibility comes from the fact that you have a blunt instrument in many cases uh, where they're, they're capable of executing um, the battle drills they've been taught. But if they had to stop and, and, and then to make orders up on their own and uh, adapt, improvise, and overcome, they might not be as flexible as uh, some of the, uh, the leaders uh, of the Western armies. Now, we used to train in the United States Army on this all the time. We would uh, constantly practice uh, changing leadership and putting people in, understanding what we call the commander's intent, and basically operating with a... Uh, a uh, a command system called Mission Command. So when you want to get technical about this, and, and I can always get technical, probably too technical for you, uh, but the, Ger <laughs> yeah. the Germans have a great way of explaining it. There's, uh, there's two spectrums. On one side, let's say the left side of the spectrum, the Germans would call it Befehlstaktik, which basically means uh, that you have orders-intensive operations. And on the right side of the spectrum, you have uh, what people call mission tactics or mission command, or what the Germans would call Auftragstaktik. Now, the, in order to operate on the right side of this, Auftragstaktik, on the mission command, on the, on the, the looser rein command and control system versus a tighter rein command and control system. And if you can imagine riding a horse, if you have a horse that is uh, uh, spirited and wants to do its own thing, you have to be very much in tight control, otherwise that horse will go wherever it wants to go. Uh, or if you have a horse that is not well trained with a rider, you have to have tighter control, so you're tighter on the reins. Right. When you're um, when you're able to uh, have a well-trained horse, a horse that uh, kind of knows you just by a gentle nudge, uh, suddenly you have a horse that you can be very loose rein with. So rather than use these obscure German terms, let's use the tight rein command and loose rein command. Right. So tight rein is for your, you know, not necessarily volunteers, but people who have not been conscripted into the military and then conscripts are under this type yeah. of command. Obviously, if you have lesser training and less ability to make decisions at your level, you have to be tight rein. Uh, platoon right. leaders usually follow the orders of their company commanders, but in the Russian army, uh, the Soviet army of the time, uh, you know, you could be executed for not obeying the orders of your company commander. Right, so, right. you know, the, the idea that you would execute the orders and that the plan was important. So the, the concept of inflexibility comes in when the plan no longer makes sense and you have to make a decision. See, if you have a perfect plan, you can do a lot of things. But 
I've never seen a perfect plan. In fact, what happens is after the first shot is fired, everything goes out the window. And although the plan right. is important because it becomes a basis for changes, and the planning helps you think about where you're going and what you should be doing, right. if you can't adapt, improvise, and overcome because your leaders are trained to take decisions, not make them, but take decisions when they have to, if they hesitate and wait for orders, then you can cause real problems. Hesitation usually gets you killed. So that's where the inflexibility comes into. Now, if everything goes according to plan, if it's a steamroller, if in fact, you know, you you, uh, you slime the area with chemical weapons, you plaster it with, uh, with um, uh, lots of uh, high explosives from artillery and rockets, and then you march through, then of course you can go according to plan. But even in that circumstance, you're going to come to a bridge that is broken that you need it. You're going to come to a river that you right. have to ford. And so the the highlights of the Western armies in the Cold War, the strongest suit that they had was that they had trained and invested a tremendous amount in their junior leaders who could take decisions at the right time. Now, that doesn't mean that right. every leader was perfect or that every leader was, uh, you know, a great, uh, a great armored commander or a great infantry uh, commander. But it does mean that, in general, uh, that idea of why the Russians were inflexible, why the Soviets were inflexible, was because of this, because of the idea that they were tight rein versus loose rein. And you see this in their operations in World War II. Um, commanders were ordered to do things, and if they didn't do it, they were ordered to continue to do things, even if they didn't make sense. Uh, that doesn't mean it can't happen in a Western Army, but the concept is that in a Western Army, particularly the United States Army, the commanders are supposed to understand the higher commander's intent and to take decisions at the right time. So that's a long answer to a very good question. Yeah. And uh, I just kind of wanted to ask a little bit more about this. Uh, I mean, would you say that the Soviets, you said you were talking about their inflexibility through command. Would you say this changed when they invaded Afghanistan and they kind of came across a new enemy? Um, you, you can kind of see in the, be the early parts of the Afghan war that they were using more conventional Soviet tactics and doctrine. But as the war went on and they figured out, oh, this is not a, this is not a conventional war. Do you think it changed for the better or worse? What, what, what's well, your Russian, on that? Russian officers are very serious about their uh, about their trade, and they study they study right. very uh, sincerely. And Soviet officers, of course, were no different. Uh, in Afghanistan, uh, everyone starts to learn on the job. You start to learn as things go on, and it's very it's very dynamic. So because everything is changing, you know, and I've been to Afghanistan, so as everything changes. It's not one war that's 12 years long. It's it's 12 wars that were one year long. Right. Uh, it changes all the time. So uh, because it's very dynamic, officers have to be able to adapt, improvise, and overcome. A education and training and, and uh, meritocracy system that focuses on leaders being able to do that will provide you with a better force. So if you if you have officers who are trained not to think but just to obey orders, you'll have a big problem in fighting anywhere. Now, the Russians adapted and they overcame uh, during the, um, the uh, Afghanistan fight that they had, but again, it changed every year, and their ability to do so with a, with a conscript army was difficult. Right. Imagine if you only have soldiers for a short period of time. It takes three to four years to really train a good soldier. I mean, to really have a good unit, you need to keep units together for a while, too. Right. So 
there's both individual training and unit training. And the biggest drawback of the American Army and many Western armies was that uh, they would uh, have long-term soldiers uh, but short-term units. So a unit might be together as a team for uh, two years under one commander, yet its people were constantly rotating in and out. And the challenge with that is, is like anything else, imagine making a video game where your level designers change every three months. Right. Yeah. It gets very difficult, yes. So it's very important to keep your teams together and to keep your leadership together. So those are lessons that we can learn from both the Russian, the Soviet armies, and the American armies of the Cold War. Absolutely, yeah. And yeah, like you said, with video game development, like, you know, you make a, dead mo- a deadline, you make a plan, it's never going to go according to plan. Things are going to change. That's you right. Know, you've got a bunch of different people operating on one similar goal, but they're, they are different people, and you have to obviously keep that in mind. Um, and, and, and the question you have is, is how, do you, how do you train, coach, educate those people exactly. so that they, they are communicated with so they know where to go? Do they understand the overall intent, you know, the purpose, the key tasks, and the end state? You know, what does victory look like so that they can maneuver you know, in the right direction, even when they can't talk to anybody, when everything's gone to hell, and they have to make a decision. You right. see, if they have to wait for orders, that means they'll stop. Or they'll keep going along the same route, which could be driving off the cliff. They don't know. But they, if they have to wait for orders, what are they going to do? And how many times in war is there a situation where you can't get anyone to get orders from? So you have to take a decision on your own. And if your system supports that, you're better off to be better than if your system doesn't support that. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. You, you have to imagine as well as in, in the in the uh, uh, circumstance of, for example, if it had been a war in Europe, all of the like uh, electronic warfare and potential EMPs making communications very difficult via radio, how much that might affect Soviet uh, ability to react as well. Um, because or anyone's, like, or anyone's ability. Anyone, yeah, yeah. 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 But especially and if, if nuclear this, weapons are used and you have EMP, because that's where that's the only place during the cold where you're going to get EMP is from nuclear right. weapons. Once that happens, there aren't going to be too many radios that are going to work anywhere that are in the bursting area. So then you're down to, okay, what were we supposed to do? And what's the overall plan? And what happens when I can't even reach company headquarters? What do I do? Do I surrender? Do I keep fighting? Well, you never surrender. But what do you do? You know, how do you do this? So uh, the situation is, uh, is very challenging in those circumstances. Uh, but in high-intensity combat, where tanks and artillery and aircraft and rockets and missiles are coming, even if you don't use chemical weapons and nuclear weapons, you know, you're in a very dynamic, very fast-paced, very deadly battlefield. And commanders need to have leaders that trust them. Commanders need to be able to take decisions rapidly, understanding the higher commander's intent. And you actually have to know the intent to hire, not only of, of your commander, but your commander's commander. So imagine if you're a platoon leader, you have to know what your company commander's thinking and how he expects you to fight the battle and your battalion commander, what he's thinking and how he expects you to fight the battle. And for those of you that don't understand the uh, the military structure, uh, it's basically the first unit, second unit, third unit, fourth unit in echelon. So you have to always understand the intent to hire to be able to operate effectively within within uh, mission command, uh, being able to, to uh, think uh, about the right way to go versus the wrong way. 
even when you can't communicate with something. And that's why this is so important. Right. Um, so, Luke, do you want to ask the next question from uh, Optima? Sure, sure. So, what was the actual level of readiness from formations under your command versus their desired level of readiness? Uh, can you tell us how that was measured and maintained? Yeah, that's another good question. Um, when I first uh, arrived in Germany, um, I was uh, a tank platoon leader. As a second lieutenant, I was supposed to have five tanks and four men per tank. So if you do your math, that's 20 people. When I took, when I took uh, leadership of that first platoon, I, I was in the third platoon of the 3rd Battalion, 32nd Armor. Uh, I had uh, initially nine soldiers, and I had uh, five tanks, but uh, th two of them uh, were in op, and the third one was was uh, not doing well. Uh, this was 1978, just to show you how uh, how long ago that was. Wow! And um, yeah, don't laugh too hard. Yeah, <laughs> time flies. Uh, but what was interesting was that um, we had just had a presidential election in the United States, and Ronald Reagan had uh, been elected president. And one of the things that he vowed to do was to make a change in uh, the military's ability to uh, uh, create and generate deterrence, because our job was to was to make sure that if we were totally ready to fight, uh, the enemy would look at us and say, well, they're ready, we shouldn't be fighting. However, if we were totally incapable of fighting and you're a pushover, well, that just invites someone to try to push you over. So... Once uh, President Reagan became president, suddenly I noticed that things got better. Suddenly I started to get more people. By the time I took command of a tank company in the same unit, two years later, I had a full company of soldiers at 100%, uh, and I had a, a maintenance uh, ratio of about 90 to 95%. Uh, initially, when I had that first platoon that I was talking to you about, it was more like 60% and a, and a manning of about... Forty uh, percent, which is which is abysmal and impossible. Now they told me as a lieutenant that I would be able to get people if we had a war. They would send me folks. Imagine how well that would have worked, getting cooks and mechanics and other folks thrown into a tank who you've never met before, and now you're going to fight the most uh, deadly and dramatic battle in history with strangers. Right. So not a good situation. Now it changed rapidly while I was there. So it was interesting to see how we reacted. You know, the United States had just ended the uh, Vietnam War. It had, uh, the, the, uh, our, our, our forces left there in 73, but in 75, the war ended with the, uh, with the uh, fall of Saigon. And uh, so between 75 and 78, you know, was a very bad time in our Army. And one of the jobs that I had as a young officer and, and throughout my career was to rebuild the American Army uh, from that uh, experience. And I will tell you that uh, we got very good at what we did uh, in a very short period of time. So as the 80s started to come about, things got much better. And as the 90s came about, we were, we were, we were at the top of our game. Very interesting. Um, actually, I kind of have a side question since that was mentioned. Um, so Vietnam was just, had just ended. Uh, the military was extremely unpopular by that time in the 70s. Why did you decide that you wanted to make a career out of the military? Well, popularity is an interesting thing. Um, there were people who um, uh, were protesting the Vietnam War primarily because they didn't want to serve. Uh, I believe that in life, uh, you're not alone. That, in fact, 
you must take care of your family and uh, you must take care of those around you. And, and from that grows an idea of, uh, of uh, you know, what should you, what is your duty, what is your responsibility to your country? And, um, you know, I uh, believe that uh, uh, when you look at what you stand for and what you fight for and what you die for, if you can't answer those questions, well, you're not what I consider, you know, a person of quality. You're a person who doesn't really believe in anything. So when I was young, I knew what I stood for. I knew what I would fight for, and I knew what I would die for. So when I was uh, as, uh, as young as I can remember, I decided I was going to be a professional soldier and uh, that I was uh, uh, doing everything I could in my uh, preparation prior to, uh, to uh, going to uh, the military to be prepared. So uh, I uh, uh, did everything that I could to be ready to go to West Point, United States Military Academy, and uh, I was able to uh, be selected for that, that role. And uh, I went to the academy and graduated after four years as a second lieutenant and um, uh, got one of the best educations that you could imagine in the world. Uh, West Point is a very difficult place to go into. My class started off with... Uh, 1,216 cadets, we graduated about 630. So it, it was a very stiff uh, uh, attrition rate, and um, it, is, uh, it is unlike any other place that you've ever been. It's not exactly uh, a place where you um, now uh, go to college and, and have a safe space. Um, it wasn't quite like that. Right. Yeah, so to answer your question, uh, I think that... Um, uh, I saw the world a little differently than some other people. I saw the uh, the issues. I was always a, uh, a voracious reader when I was a child, and, and when I was growing up, I just read everything I could. Uh, I mean, one of the first books that I remember reading was the Iliad of Homer, and uh, the the idea that um, uh, you have to stand for something and that you have to help people, to me, that was uh, part of my motivation. And uh, the um, the great opportunity to lead. American soldiers was, again, the greatest blessing that I could imagine in my life because uh, they were a, a fantastic group of people. And every time I worked with them, I learned and grew and became better from my, my uh, op opportunity to serve. That's definitely very, a very noble thing of you to do. You know, I, I, I envy you for your, and I, I do thank you for your service as well. I mean, it's not definitely back then, especially, I'm sure you were judged at, at, at some points for your, you know, during the 1970s when, you know, it wasn't people kind of never really talked about it or would frown upon other people talking about it. So, yeah, it was interesting times and uh, our nation was able to pull through it and uh, we were able to uh, to do, um, uh, I think, uh, many right things. Um, you know, every nation has challenges. Right. Uh, the United States of America is a self-adjusting system. We believe that everyone has uh, the right to rise to the level of their of their merit, and they have uh, the uh, the gift of uh, of opportunity, uh, equality of opportunity, not the equality of outcome, but the equality of opportunity. So, if you want to do something, you know this is the place to do it. Uh, but because it's a self-adjusting system, when things get out of whack, it kind of readjusts. It takes sometimes a few years, sometimes a decade, but um, in general, the people are pretty good, and they figure out the right thing to do. Absolutely. Yeah, as long as the right people are there to be able to make the decisions, and I think yeah, they if they believe in themselves enough, they can get to that position. So yeah, it's good. Um, I thought I'd move on just 
have a last question for Optimot here so we can get to some of the other ones. Sure. Um, this one I thought was actually the most interesting to me. Uh, he said, during your time in the army, were you ever impressed by an enemy weapon system or a solution to a tactical problem to the point where you thought it was a superior, it was superior to its equivalent in your army? I would have to say yes. Uh, there are many, many uh, opportunities to study other armies. And of course, the first uh, army that you study is your enemy. As, as uh, the great Chinese uh, military philosopher Sun Tzu said, uh, you must know yourself and know the enemy. Uh, and um, I spent uh, a lot of my time studying uh, the Soviet army. Uh, I, know, I knew their equipment. I had a chance to operate some of their equipment. Uh, I read their training manuals. Uh, I, as I told you earlier, I was able to actually be, be um, uh, trained by some, uh, by some Russian defectors who uh, taught me an awful lot about their planning methods. And there was much to be admired. <clears throat> there are things that you could learn. If you can't learn from the enemy, uh, you're an idiot. You actually learn everything from the enemy uh, in battle. Yeah. So um, uh, some of the things that they had were interesting. Now, it's a different quality and a different purpose in many cases. But Russian artillery was very impressive. You know, Russian artillery historically has been their god of war. It is the way that they yeah. they truly reinforce uh, victory and stave off, in some cases, defeat by being able to, to, yeah, to be able to, yeah, to bring this, this, this red hammer down upon you. So the, the quality and the quantity of their artillery was always impressive. Uh, from their tanks, and their uh, their uh, infantry fighting vehicles, you know the um, the tanks were uh, about equal to what we had. Uh, the M60 and the M60A3 uh, were actually superior to some of the the Russian tanks of the time. Uh, the M60A3, which I was able to command a tank company of uh, in the in 1980 to 1982, was um, was a really superior version. The last version of the Patton tank that uh, could fight on the battle, modern battlefield. And it had been upgraded with electronics and with uh, a, a wonderfully um, powerful uh, tank thermal sight uh, called the TTS, the tank thermal sight. And uh, that right. made all the difference because you could see day and night, you could see hot and cold. Uh, and of course, as a tank officer and a tank commander, being able to observe the enemy first and fire first makes a huge difference. Uh, they, the Russian, the Soviets didn't have that. They still had infrared uh, sensing devices. Um, their BMP, the infantry fighting vehicle, was uh, quite frankly very revolutionary. Uh, and um, the yeah. first real infantry fighting vehicle the world had ever seen because before this we had half-tracks and armored personnel carriers. And it, it was one of the reasons that the U.S. Army uh, demanded that they have a similar vehicle and, and created the Bradley fighting vehicle. Um, when you compare the two, they're, they're different kinds of vehicles from different cultures. And, uh, you know, the Bradley is very superior in some ways, but when you look at the cost of the Bradley and the number of BFPs and everything, uh, it's an interesting thing when, when uh, you know, quantity has a quality on its own. So uh, the different approaches to warfare of the Soviet Army were a lesson learned for me to teach me to open my eyes to different ideas. And... What was interesting was that after my training at the Top Gun School of the U.S. Army at, at uh, Fort Irwin, California, where I played the Russian commander, basically, or the or the Russian uh, Iraqi commander in some cases, um, 
Right. When I did that for 14 days straight and then uh, went home for four days and then went out and did it for 14 more days and then did that all year round. You were basically in Valhalla where you were fighting every day, only you were coming back to fight again. So um, <laughs> it was an amazing uh, experience because we had on every system, we had laser designators and laser shooters that were eye safe, but were nonetheless, they would designate the proper range and, and effects of the weapon. So if a tank is firing, it would range out to 3,000 meters or whatever the range of the tank was, kind of the, 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 uh, the, the version of the tank you had, and it would then destroy whatever it could destroy at that range. So it was a very realistic laser tag on a massive scale that was very authentic. And so these were all battles that were fought in real time that were free play. I mean, they were not scripted. Yes, everyone had a mission. Everyone had a plan. But how the end it was up to the players, were up to the up to the teams. And when you think about that, that kind of scrimmaging, being able to play uh, football, if you would, in a scrimmage every day, and uh, and not take uh, too many casualties. Uh, I mean, there were per- people that were killed and, and and hurt because this is tough fighting. This is tough training. I mean, but uh, not at any way. We weren't shooting real weapons at them, and so um, uh, all of this was just uh, uh, an amazing way to to learn the art and the trade of being a combat leader. And of course, there was also a section of the National Training Center that was totally devoted to live fire training. And when you were up in a live fire training area, you were shooting at Soviet formations that were coming at you, um, and they would actually have targets that would pop up in the array exactly as if they were coming at you in their different formations. And uh, it was truly a great uh, training experience. The U.S. Army learned how to fight at the National Training Center. And um, it, uh, it saved a tremendous amount of lives and did a tremendous job when the Army finally fought in Desert Storm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Desert Storm was, I'm sure, you know, because of the work you were doing, I mean, it's, it's, it, you know, we were able to have the best outcome that we yes. could in that absolutely. conflict. So. Um, it's it's interesting that you say uh, you know unscripted and you know things kind of go to how the players want to go because that kind of relates to how you know exactly what we want to yes. achieve with Escalation 1985. You have I mean you have games now and you know with a multiplayer shooter even even in multiplayer like you're seeing a lot of scripted events happening like in the Call of Duty series you're basically running around an arena trying to achieve a single goal but with Escalation 1985 and other games that are out, you know, that are similar to our sim- our play style, just not in the same theme, um, you're basically thrown into the map. You're, th- you know, the Soviets are on one end, the Americans are on the other, but there's nothing telling you exactly how to attack the different objectives. And the fact that the map is so large, there's and and you know, you have so many different types of equipment and vehicles available for you to use, you know. There's an infinite amount of possibilities that can that you can do, and an infinite amount of outcomes, and that will determine who the real winner is. You know, you'll have you know you could you could send out you know a tank platoon or you know not, or since there's not going to be enough players to make an entire platoon, you know a squad, and then you'll have you know the commander, and depending on how many tickets you get, you can call in a nuclear strike. So you know, uh, you know how in your opinion, what do you think about that kind of the play style, you know, do you think it would work in a, in a setting like ours? Well, of course it will. And it, that's, that's the appeal. Um, this is one of the reasons, in fact, that I was hired by Microsoft uh, 
uh, 15 years ago. Um, while I was in the Army, I was working on ways to, to uh, train officers and to try to get them to uh, uh, look, at, look at combat operations and all the possibilities and then quickly pick better answers than worse answers. There's never a correct answer. Uh, it's only correct in hindsight. Uh, there's there's a, there's the possibility of a pretty good outcome and there's a possibility of a very bad outcome and you try to go somewhere between that spectrum. Well, one of the things that I did while I was on active duty is I wrote three books uh, that are interactive stories. So they're choose your own adventure books. Uh, the first one I have, yeah, one of them. Armor <laughs> Armor Attacks was the first one and it's all about a tank platoon yep. where you have to fight uh, uh, against an enemy and and the enemy. Um, is a living, thinking enemy that, that you know, will, will put down all sorts of different challenges to you, and you have a chance to do all sorts of things. So you come to a section, and it says, choose either A, B, or C. Do you go left? Do you go right? Do you do this? And so you choose, and then those choices make you either a hero or a zero, depending on uh, on your choices. I laugh about hero to zero, but the point is is that you, you choose between different options and you actually do this with your understanding of the situation so the book was designed to teach young officers about decision making and about being able to size up a situation quickly and figure things out and then I wrote another one called infantry combat which is for the infantry officer and then I wrote one as a company commander called uh, combat team and so these these books were picked up Microsoft found them and that's one of the reasons they selected me to uh, help this video game company in Texas uh, because they learned about me through those books, so it's a it's an interesting thing to talk about uh, the same thing happening in the game where you have an opportunity to take a wide wide number of choices and follow the path along those choices till they're to, until you get to their ultimate outcome. And uh, the more that those things can be authentic, the more that they can be based upon uh, working with your friends. In other words, uh, your tactical, your technical, and your your leadership capabilities, the more that game will appeal to people. And, you know, yeah, ha have you taken a look at the uh, at Offworld Industries squad and any kind of gameplay of that or anything? Well, I've been looking at almost every game that comes out one way or the other. I don't I don't play every one of them because I no one has that much right. time. Uh, but, uh, exactly. but I do love uh, I do love strategy games. And um, I, uh, I like games like Brothers in Arms. And of course, I've, I've looked at all the Call of Duty games. So um, uh, there's a uh, there's uh, always a a uh, you would like to have a completely open world you know and be able to do anything that becomes very difficult in many games as you know so many other m most of the games are not quite that open they're they're more of a fat linear uh, approach yeah. uh, but but uh, the fatter you can get that or the more open you can get it the better and. Um, uh, it's going to be very interesting to see, um, you know, how Escalation 1985 is able to to uh, approach this from uh, more of an open uh, capability than, than closed. And yeah, there's a lot of different factors that play into that, but definitely unscripted gameplay is the main, you know, drawing point. And you know, there is a possibility that VR could be involved with some of the vehicle combat. We've been we've been discussing that. Um, but that's, yeah, that's going to be exciting. Yeah, I. Yeah, it's a very very exciting possibility. You know the the idea that um, that um, uh, you can write your own story basically. Right. Is the is what intrigues people. And to have that story afterwards, you know, having having to, talking yes. about your friends like, 
Oh, you know, I was playing this. I was playing a, you know, Escalation 1985, and I, you know, I yeah. broke through the NATO defenses, and I captured the objective, and then a nuclear strike came in. There's not, and, <laughs> right, and yeah. you know, a bunch of, and or or they sent a chemical attack, and it stopped us in our tracks, yeah. and you know, there's well, just a. And also, know. all the maps are are you know accurate. They're genuine. You know, they're based on real areas yes. where these would be battles of World War Three would have taken place. So. You know, right. the terrain can also affect how the battle will play out. Uh, different scenarios will happen on the map based on how the rest of the campaign's been going, how the war's been going in general. Um, you know, just, you know, very, very exciting, you know, stuff yes. like that. And in the 19, in the 1980s, uh, every officer, uh, combat officer, had his uh, general defensive plan. So we knew exactly where we were supposed to go when the balloon went up, when the uh, when the alert was sounded. So imagine that you're you're living. I was in a place called Friedberg, Germany, which is in Hesse, which is uh, uh, to the west, uh, correction, to the east of Frankfurt. Right. So um, uh, we would be alerted, and uh, usually that alert would happen at, at two in the morning, and you had to, you had an hour to get down to your equipment and get everything ready to go. So our tanks were always ready to move. And um, and then we would get the word of where we're going, and in about two to three hours, we'd all be in convoy, and we'd be heading toward the East German border. And we did this frequently, and we never knew whether it was real or whether it was training. In many cases, neither did our senior leaders, because what had happened in the 80s, as you're probably well aware, is that uh, Soviet leaders were rather old, and they kept dying. And every time one of every time one of them died, someone was saying, "Hey, maybe we should attack." So no one knew whether or not, uh, when uh, there was a change of leadership in Moscow, whether this would cause a problem or not. So we were going to the border a lot. Wow. And uh, so I, the reason I bring this up is because I remember my general defensive position, my general my GDP plan, uh, as if it was today. I mean, I can I can see it in my mind's eye. I I know. Where every one of those tanks was located, I knew where our hide positions were, where our fighting positions would be, where we were going to cache ammunition, where the enemy would come because he could only come so many places because of the ground, how I was going to kill him as he came across that ground, uh, how I was going to call for artillery fire or not if I could get through, uh, what, what I was going to do to, to, to take care of the wounded, what I was going to do if we had to fall back. All of those things were constantly planned and drilled. And so... I uh, someday I, I I've always said I'm going to go back to that general defensive plan area and walk that ground again huh. uh, because it makes such an impact on on me as a young officer. Is that classified, yeah, it's, or it's, would that be or would that be a possible map for escalation? Oh, it's it certainly could be a map for escalation because it's no longer classified. Uh, uh, the East and West Germany are now one country, and uh, there's no there's no plan to defend against a Soviet army attack in <laughs> East Germany. Yeah, so. Uh, you know, yeah. So, uh, but it is a, um, but it is something that, uh, you know, it's kind of like, uh, you know, if you, uh, if you went, to, if you played sports and uh, you always trained at a certain gym or a certain football field, you know, you get a feeling for that place. Well, this was the same idea. Now, I was particularly lucky because I was not only a tank platoon leader in this uh, battalion, but I was also the later on. Uh, the uh, the scout platoon leader, and then the battalion motor officer, the maintenance officer, and then the company commander of the same company that I had entered when I was a second lieutenant. And all that happened 
within a four-year period. In fact, I was the youngest officer to command a tank company in uh, the Third Armored Division. Wow. I was a I was a first lieutenant, and, and company commanders are supposed to be captains. So um, uh, either they saw something good in me, or they couldn't find anyone else. I'm not <laughs> sure, but um, but uh, it was a great honor to command uh, as a first lieutenant. And um, uh, the point is, is that my general defensive plan changed, but not that much. It was all the same area, and we were the covering force. I was just getting ready uh, for, to ask that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We we were the covering force. And uh, so we were up there, and the the eleventh ACR was on our flank, and we were there, and nothing in front of us but the enemy. So, as hmm. the covering force, your job was really to just delay and buy as much time as possible. Would you guys be kind of steadily falling back, or would you really just make a a, a stand and just kind of last as long as you could? Well, that's a good question. That's a good question. The um, uh, the tactics that we practiced are part of a doctrine that the U.S. Army came about uh, developing uh, during the 1980s, and, and we used it. It was called Airland Battle. And Airland Battle's concept was that we must fight the battle within the complete depth of the battle, not just at the forward edge of the battle area. So we were holding, as a covering force area, we were holding a piece of uh, serious, uh, a, a very deep piece of ground uh, that we could defend from. And our, our, our objective was to gain time by slowing the enemy down, stopping him if possible, and then falling back upon other positions where we had ammunition pre-staged. And then we would fight again and fight again as best we could. Now, this is difficult to do. A fighting withdrawal is one of the toughest things that, um, that you can do in combat. Now, while this was happening, the rest of the Army was getting ready to fight, and artillery forces and air forces were trying to destroy the enemy's second, third, and, and, and follow-on echelons. So the concept of airland battle was to fight him across the entire depth of the battlefield, all the way back, basically, to the Soviet Union, as far as your weapons could reach that were non-nuclear. So imagine if, if the enemy's attacking and you're fighting his initial platoons and companies— the battalions that are still in column behind him are being attacked by artillery and air forces and rockets. And those uh, strikes are killing them and disrupting them and causing them problems and blocking roads and slowing them down. You see, all of warfare, be it infantry or be it uh, cavalry or be it armor, uh, is about column to line. It's about column to line. You see, you move in column and you fight on line. There's no other way to do it. You have to fight online, otherwise you shoot each other, and you don't get the most of your firepower forward. So you have to move quickly in column and then go from column to line. So the key tactics that, that platoon leaders learn, both in the infantry and in the armor, is how to move your people from one formation to the next, how to go from column to line, and the different variations. Yes, there's all sorts of variations. You know, there's... there's uh, wedges and things like that that you can move in that give you a little bit more capability. But it's basically column to line. Right. Yeah. That That's very interesting to me. Um, I, I, I've always had like a, an interest in the covering forces of the NATO troops because, yes. you know, they would have been the first yeah. to see combat and they played a very important role. 
you know, uh, like uh, for the Dutch, the pretty much there's this canal that runs through the sector, and the army was basically going to take uh, defensive lines along the canal, and the covering force would have to buy, would sit in front of the canal up to the border, and they would have like uh, 24 hours or so yes. that they'd need to delay. Uh, same in like the British sector, the U.S. sectors. I'd known that uh, it had been you know the two ACRs uh, plus some, uh, I think a battalion attached, like. Assuming it was your unit that was attached to help the kind of bulk up the 11th ACR to help. Yes, exactly yep. right. You see, because they, they could they could not get the strength that they needed. You see, the idea, if you understand column to line, you have to force the enemy out of column. Right. See, otherwise they'll just stay in column and drive all the way to the English Channel. Okay, so if he beats the covering force and we force him to go from column to line, now he's got to slow down. And you say, what do you mean you got to slow down? Well, just imagine if you're on a road and you've got 10, 13 tanks uh, on a road, okay? And you're driving down the road and now you have to go online. Well, you've got to get off the road. You can't travel as fast off on the road. And now you're trying to keep everybody online so you don't shoot each other. So you're moving slower. So this constant uh, minuet between column and line, column and line, and what you want to do is force the enemy into line, and then the columns behind him get backed up. And when the columns get backed up, they become very good targets for artillery and for air support and for rocket fire. Right. And that's the role of the covering force. Yeah. Yeah, that's very interesting. I never really looked into covering forces, but yeah, you know, it, they're, they're the first to receive all the heat. That's, that's very right. interesting. And, of course, that's why we were on such a short alert time status because right. uh, we would get these, you know, as I said, uh, the siren would go off at 2 in the morning and your heart would go down to your, your ankles going, oh, damn, we got to go. I, do I have everything ready? Am I ready? Do I have stuff, you know? And then you'd move out and you'd try to pack everything and, and you know, there you are right. driving down the Autobahn. I mean, people don't re realize we had tanks and, and, uh, and armored vehicles and huge vehicles and columns of armored vehicles driving right down normal roads. I mean, imagine if outside your house, a tank battalion drove by. That must have just been that's the what, ultimate adrenaline rush for you. Yeah, well, that, that's what, <laughs> well, that's what West Germany, that's what West Germany was like. And the West Germans were very amazing people. Um, during that time, they really understood right. uh, why we were there. I mean, I can remember the people handing me sandwiches and, and uh, of course, someone would try to hand me beers, and I would say no, and I'd have to make sure my men weren't getting any beers. You know, everybody was, <laughs> was very kind in most cases. I remember one time in particular, it's kind of a silly story, but I was I was in a defensive position, and um, we were out in an exercise called Reforger, and it was in northern Germany. And uh, this Reforger exercise, it means re uh, return of forces to Germany, Reforger. And uh, it was designed to uh, practice big operations. So we had several divisions running around fighting uh, mock wars. And so my platoon was in a defensive position. We'd been there late at night. It started to be early morning. We still didn't have orders to move, and we were just supposed to be there in our assembly area. So we're camouflaged. Everything's good. And a farmer comes up with a bucket full of eggs and hands us all some eggs. And we boiled <laughs> eggs or cooked eggs that day. And it was so good because you can only eat so many sea rations. Right. And after a while, Anything real, any real food looks really good, especially <laughs> bread. Now, in my day, when we first did this, we had sea rations. And then later on in the Cold War, when I was in Korea, I commanded uh, both uh, tank company 
and was a battalion S3, an operations officer for a battalion in Korea. And then later on, I commanded a tank battalion on the demilitarized zone. That's when we started getting the uh, meals ready to eat and all that stuff. But I'll never forget that farmer being so kind as to pass out eggs to all of our soldiers and, um, you know, wish us well. It was just a, uh, a great thing. Well, I, I got to ask now, what's your favorite flavor of MRE? <laughs> you know, they're all good. <laughs> let, me t- no, let me tell you why they're all good, okay? Normally, you wouldn't eat an MRE if you didn't have to. Yeah. But when well, you have to, but when you have to, they're good. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and and the thing is, is that, um, you know, I've been in situations where, um, you know, we had uh, adequate rations, and I've been in situations where we had one ration a day. Um, and so, uh, you know, uh, soldiers... Um, they learn. They learn to adapt, improvise, and overcome. I mean, there are some people that um, that said they didn't like this and didn't like that. But I'm an omnivore. I look at it purely as fuel. Right. I put the fuel in, and I make sure that I have it because otherwise, you might not be ready. You know. And some of it's better than others, but uh, the the flavors they have now are amazing. Yeah. I was just uh, out training a college ROTC cadets. One of the things that I do in my pro bono world is I, uh, I teach leadership to college ROTC cadets, and I take them to places, the battlefields here in the United States, uh, from the Civil War. So I've trained over 4,000 of these cadets since 2010. And I do this at my own expense, and then oftentimes we also take, I took a group uh, to Normandy just recently. So uh, I raised the money so that they could come to France, and I was uh, with some of my uh, good friends who are also Army officers and senior NCOs. We taught them leadership, based upon what had happened on D-Day and uh, some of the very dramatic fights that had occurred in the Normandy area. And one of the things we do to keep the, cheap, the trip uh, from being too expensive is we usually bring a couple cases of MREs. Huh. And so so I'll tell you that the latest the latest versions of MREs are getting better all the time. They yeah. really are. Well, the, the uh, chill, I think it's the Chili Mac. I think that's definitely <laughs> my favorite flavor. Everybody likes Chili Mac. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I... Um, I do. Uh, oh, Luke and I both do uh, reenacting. Um, basically, like very good, know, outstanding. So, uh, well, reenacting uh, uh, for me specifically, I do living history. But as uh, well as living sure. history, I do uh, tactical reenactments. So that's great. not not. You know, there are battles that we do simulate, but they're not to. Yeah, you know, they're sure. not exactly to how the battles were fought. Like, for instance, yeah. we did Operation Magistral, which was an operation in 1987 by uh, Soviet paratroopers during uh-huh. the uh, Afghan war. And we did, yes. and it's ba- it was basically to clear a road that went uh, from, I believe, on the border of Pakistan to Ka- uh, Kabul. Mm-hmm. And it was basically, it was a pivotal road to get uh, Soviet military supplies. We reenacted that battle, and it was just absolutely amazing. But then there's also, like, you know... Uh, we, I do an 82nd Airborne impression from uh, uh, Grenada. So with that, I get to actually eat MREs. And yeah, so. It's- yeah, that's great. Well, you know, I, th- I think that living history has uh, an important place. Uh, it's, it is really um, very immersive, very memorable, and very interactive to have those living historians, those, uh, those folks, explain how people lived before us. Right. Uh, one of our challenges is today is that everybody thinks that everything was invented 10 minutes ago, right. uh, when in fact we stand on the shoulders of giants. We're very lucky to be where we are today. I mean, you know, with just a simple uh, turn of the switch, 
uh, a little change in, in chance and possibility. You could, you could have been the um, young human being living in a cave trying to learn how to use fire. Yeah. Uh, so you, know, <laughs> you, ought to, you ought to be very thankful of some of the things we have like plumbing and running water. Exactly. So uh, the living history piece is interesting because it, uh, it allows people to see across the years and understand um, the depth of, of, of the human story. Right. Yeah. D I completely agree. Um, so I do, I, I would pretty much say that is what I do as well. I don't really do uh, reenacting, but I get, uh, you know, I collect military uniforms and equipment, mostly from the 80s era, which is why I'm the historical advisor here. <laughs> um, but yes. I love, I love details. You know, I don't like, you yes. know, you can get uniform and the belt and the ammo pouches and stuff, and that's cool, but... You know, to really personalize it, to really show, you know, what it was like back then. I like to get the authentic, you know, stuff that they carried in their backpacks and in the pockets. You know, the authentic uh, rations and the, the proper NBC gear, all of the little details. Um, and, and not just, uh, and then that's what I collect, but also, you know, with living history and like what you were talking about, how uh, it's been, you know... A, a long time uh, some of the stuff that's been around for like a long time i had always had interest in that and lately i've been watching uh there's like uh i mean i don't know there's all kinds of stuff like that on videos there's this uh one channel that's uh they like uh show how they used to build anything pretty much back in the day like they he'll like go out and start from scratch and cut down trees and build like you know a little shack and there's this other channel i've been watching that's like uh 18th century cooking recipes and stuff. I don't know. It just all that stuff so interesting to see well, how it was I think, all done. I think it's I think it's a great way to balance uh, today with yesterday. For instance, yeah. uh, many people think we're very smart and they think they're really brilliant because they have a smartphone. Right. I will tell you. I will tell you that if 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 the average person had to get out and fend for themselves, um, it is very difficult to learn some of the skills that our forefathers did routinely. Uh, it is very very difficult to. Um, to learn how to grow crops properly, to hunt, to skin an animal. Yeah. I mean, to uh, to learn how to drink the right water versus the bad water. I mean, all of these things, not just survival skills, but I mean the, the crafts, right. being able to build a house, being able to you know build a chair. I mean, we take all these things for granted. And um, I think that the nice thing about the, uh, the living history and the reenactors is that it brings people back to basics and gets them to think a little bit about how lucky they are. And that's always a good thing. Because a little humility can go a long way. And it's a good thing to ingrain in children, because especially with, you know, the living history events that I go to specifically, um, it's at uh, uh, the Americans in Wartime Museum out in Knoxville, Virginia. And it's basically the whole thing of it is there's tanks, and each tank is a part of a different time period and different, you know, uh, militaries from various time periods come out. Like, for instance, there's a East German BMP-1 that has East German reenactors hanging around outside, and they've got, you know, MPI KMs and all their equipment laid out for all... And the thing, what I love most seeing is children, you know, like, probably, you know, below the age of 10 or around that coming up, and they're super interested in saying, oh, this is cool, you know, I want to hold this, I want to touch this, and Right. That is literally the kindling for, you know, a potential historian and someone who could potentially change the world, you know? Exactly. It, start, it starts out also, with the small things. Yeah, and it's also important, I believe, 
for people to understand the full spectrum of human understanding. Uh, everything is not uh, dandelions and dancing bears. Yeah. Um, you know, there are things in the world uh, and, and dangerous times. And so it's important at some point uh, for everyone to kind of understand that because uh, otherwise you may be faced with a uh, tremendous shock someday and not be able to act at all. Exactly. But, uh, another thing as well is that, uh, you know, the Cold War era doesn't get as much attention as it should. You know, it's all World yes. War Two, Vietnam, uh, and even Desert Storm in recent yes. years has gotten more attention. Um, but it, it's interesting as well for, like, the 80s to show... I mean, a lot of people, uh, you know, have kind of forgotten that it really was a very tense and uh, dangerous time, that it could have really become the Third World War, and it didn't. Yeah, um, yes. But it's, it's, it's extremely important to to learn from that, to see how it played out, and to, to, to see the details, and, uh, you know, how we overcame that, and how we avoided it, you know? Right, and that's the lesson, is, is that how did we avoid it, and yeah. how did we keep the world from being uh, destroyed? Um, but I was, um, in several circumstances, uh, at least three that I, I recall very vividly, when we thought this was it, we thought that this was the war. And, uh, you know, here we were locked and loaded all in our positions, and um, luckily it didn't happen. And it could have. And I think during that time, if you start to look now at the records that have been um, uh, declassified, you'll see that there were several times when uh, the Soviet Union was very close to launching an attack, believing that if they didn't use it, they would lose it. And um, uh, that was a dangerous time, and luckily... Uh, uh, people with uh, better hearts and better heads uh, overcame that, and we didn't have that. So I've got. Uh, I think this will probably be our last question for the uh, for this episode. Um, but I, I feel like it it kind of links together with what we were just talking about. Um, so Joker two thirty nine asks, uh, "What was the thing that frightened you the most if World War Three had broken out? Uh, besides." the end of the world or potential end of the world? Yeah, that is a very good question. And I've thought about that a lot and I have an immediate answer because it's the same answer I had when I was there because I remember thinking about this and the thing that I feared the most of anything else was letting down my men. Mm -hmm. My greatest fear that I wouldn't make the right decisions or that I wouldn't be strong enough or smart enough or courageous enough to do what had to be done. And I just prayed every day that I would never let them down. My fear was that if I ever let them down, I could never live with myself, even if I didn't live very long. You know, my point was, is that my role was to take care of my people, accomplish the mission, and do so with the least loss of resources and the least loss of life. And my, my uh, greatest fear was, not, was letting them down. A very good answer from a leader, for sure. Excellent answer. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. No. Now, don't it's, get me wrong. Don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that I'm superbly brave or, or, or braver than anyone else or anything like that. But I could face almost anything. But I don't think I could face letting them down. Exactly. You know, the idea that the idea that they depended on me to make to keep them alive, to win the fight, and to make the right decisions. So I trained my heart, mind, and soul to do that, and I took every opportunity. Uh, during my time in the army, to um, to hone my leadership skills and to hone my ability to do my job and take care of my people. And you know, another thing I'd like to say, I mean, it's it, 
you know, thankfully you never had to use those skills in an actual combat situation in in you know Germany at that time if there was a third that's world right. war. But no, it's good correct. that you know later on through other conflicts and even after you retired from the military that you were able to use those in you know the virtual world and creating video games. And it's just it's it's absolutely wonderful to see that. Yeah, in in the games that I've uh, been blessed to be a part of uh, creating, uh, the books that I've written, uh, you know, the TV shows and the radio shows and things that I do, uh, the um, the idea of telling uh, the human story and trying to relate what the most important things are, so that people can put them in perspective, no matter what their walk of life. Uh, that to me is one of my goals. Excellent. Um, so, uh, we're, we're definitely, we definitely have to do a second episode cause this was amazing. This, I'd be happy. It went by quick. Um, I, I, so yeah. Go Is there anything run. else you wanted to talk about? Mr. I think we've talked ourselves out at this point. Yeah. I, I could talk, I could talk for another four hours. I, I the totally sub, the could subject, as well. <laughs> The subject is amazing. The game is amazing. You know, you guys have some great questions and, um, uh, but just the fact that people are asking questions about the Cold War and trying to think it through. This is a healthy thing for us to do. You know, there are some people that say, oh, you know, you shouldn't play video games. You know, all it is is violence. But I go, wait a minute. You know, we have to understand the important issues of today. And one of the ways we can do that is to immerse ourselves in a feeling and an understanding of yesterday. And yeah. so what this game can help us do is this game can actually help us understand better why we all need to avoid any possibility of a third world war. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, yeah, you kind of brought up the fact that, you know, oh, especially with, I'm sure you've heard the news that, you know, our president is, you know, saying, okay, video games can cause, you know, you know, it can it can it can aid in someone causing some kind of you know event or like a mass shooting, and you know, video games are so much more than that. They are an art, and they can you know they're able to yes, they are able to change someone's opinion or mind about something, but it can do it in a good way. And like you said, yeah, that's that's true. That's true, and it also allows you to uh, I believe strongly that uh, it allows you to um, experience and do things. Uh, that um, uh, particularly young men uh, really need to do that they've been told they can't do anymore. You know, for instance, young men were made to be hunter-gatherers. Um, and so what we've done in our school systems is we've said, well, they're, they're still trying to hunter and gather, so we're going to drug them and make them, uh, uh, you know, more docile, and that will make them happier, and then we'll plug them into video games. Now, the thing about video games is this. It's not the video game. It's it's people who live in isolation. Yes. And I believe that's what the president's really talking about, although it hasn't been fully articulated yet. But it's the idea that, that video games can be a healthy part of your life just as other games can be. Yeah. You know, you can, you can do board games, you can play chess, you know. But if the only thing you do is play chess with yourself, you don't know anybody. Yeah. You know, you have to get out in this world and meet people. And you have to get out and have a purpose. And you have to have an understanding of why... Everyone in this world can, in fact, uh, make a better life for everyone else if we just try. 
um, it, it's about it's about the human experience and not a isolated experience. Yeah. Exposing yourself to outside elements, even if you're sure. afraid of them. Exactly. And the other the other problem is is that whenever you're anonymous in anything, you know, why do why do uh, people who beat people up in the streets wear masks? You know, because they want to be anonymous. Yeah. You know. Um, when you're anonymous, uh, things get evil fast. And, yeah. and sometimes on the internet, too many people can in fact be anonymous. And that's why you see sometimes the cussing and the, um, you know, the, the language and the, and the, and the, and the, and the, uh, the hate speech, if you will, that comes out over the internet yeah. because they think they can do so without, without any repercussion. Yeah. You know, and if they did that to your face, it would be a different story. At least they'd yeah. have to look at you. You know, it takes courage to be able to look someone in the eye and, and talk with them about something. So I believe it's more about uh, the biggest challenge we have in, in, in the Western world and in the whole world is that uh, we need to find ways to bring people together rather than get people to be isolated. Exactly. Absolutely. Having just, you know, having someone that feels loved. That's it. That's all it, that's yeah. all it takes. Everyone wants to feel that they have some worth, yeah. that they are, in fact, appreciated. As a leader, what you have to do is you have to be a dealer in appreciation. You have to be able to go out there and say, you are doing a good job and I appreciate what you're doing. You are not doing as good a job, but you could. Let me train you and coach you and, and mentor you, and I'll bring you to a point where you can do a better job because that's what you need to do. You know, we need, we need leaders who appreciate people, and we need people to understand their worth, their self-worth. And by the way, your self-worth doesn't depend on someone else, yeah. which is the key thing. And that's why... Uh, the the whole point of isolation is so sad because when people feel isolated, they oftentimes don't care for other people. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, you really hit the the head on the nail or nail on the head, however the saying goes <laughs> on that. <laughs> so it's, uh, it's nail, it's nail on the head. Nail right? on the head. <laughs> yeah, you get the yeah. idea exactly. Okay. <laughs> I do. Um, I think I'll probably I'll roll with the outro now. Um. I was trying to think if there's anything else we could talk about. Yeah, that was, let's. We could talk for for forever, but but we we could yeah. keep going for, for a long <laughs> yeah. time. Yeah, well, like I said, we'll have to do this. We'll have yeah. to do a second yeah. one because we've got more well, questions. Well, I tell you what, I, we can get more. I look questions. forward to that. I've had a great time, and uh, I just think that um, you know there's a there's a great possibility for Escalation 1985 to be a fantastic game that uh, will actually bring people together, not isolate them, but bring them together and and, and let them experience a a um, a part of the world that luckily never happened and never we hope ever will happen but it it puts you in that what if situation and and that makes you think and if yeah. it makes you think and it maybe touches your heart and makes you you know kind of say wow life is really good maybe maybe we should work this out then then not only is the game fun but it also has served a greater purpose and you couldn't ask for more than that absolutely absolutely so, this has been the Escalation 1985 podcast. We are. Small. You know what? No, stop everything you're doing. Okay, <laughs> Anton's gonna edit this. I. Okay, okay. Let me give me give me a, a fresh break. What's the? So, keeping with Escalation uh, tradition, I have to ask you a very oh, important question. One of the most yes. important questions you will ever have to answer in your life. So you need to. Be sure about your answer. It's very important, Mr. Rondell. Right. <laughs> very important. All right. Are you ready? Send it. Waffles or pancakes? Waffles. Oh. 
That's it. That's it. Oh, this man. this is it. I I knew it. Hey, look, I, knew, oh, I knew it. I I, knew. I make waffles for my family for big events, for Christmas, for Thanksgiving and stuff for breakfast. I love I have a waffle maker, a special waffle maker, and I love making the waffles. <laughs> you know, I cannot I'm not a French chef and I can't do too many fancy things, but I can cook a steak, I can cook a burger, I can make a great pizza, but I'll tell you what, I make good waffles. <laughs> Uh, I knew, I knew you were a man of culture. <laughs> I am so glad you confirmed we, it. We we ask everybody on the podcast whether they like pancakes or waffles, and usually most of the time it's 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 wa- it's waffles. But I'm pretty <laughs> neutral on it. I I love but I love one just as much as the other. I don't think I could choose. Yeah, he 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 refuses to pick a side because he's weak. <laughs> well, there's nothing wrong with pancakes, let me tell you. But. Uh, Waffles, uh, you know, I enjoy making them, and uh, there's n- when I make them, they're always gone as fast as they come out of the waffle. Exactly. Maker. I mean, it's amazing. I was yeah. at I was in the Netherlands with uh, Kai and Sebastian and the and some of the other team members. Kai made us a brec- or a uh, breakfast the first morning of, of pancakes. I woke up, I woke up to Sebastian coming into my room, and he was playing. Uh, I think he was playing. Uh, it's raining men. But and I, and I come out and there's a big plate of pancakes and yeah it was great. Not waffles yeah. unfortunately, but yeah. Uh, well, you know that pancakes and flapjacks. Excellent. You know, flapjacks a little different, but uh, uh, you probably don't have those. Uh, they don't have those in Europe. But yeah. a flapjack is uh, is kind of a lighter pancake. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's uh, yeah. Yeah, uh, Peter. You know the reason why Kai made uh, made pancakes for you? Why is that? He was, he was, it was hardcore he was propaganda, taunting, he and you fell for me. it. Oh yeah, oh yeah. He he was trying to buy. He was trying to buy your loyalty. Oh man. Oh no. Um, yeah. I'm trying right. to. So what? Uh, do we need? Do we need an '80s '80s uh, reference for the outro? Uh, if you want to. I mean, did we do it? Did we do it in the last one? I don't remember. When you need an '80s reference, a song. So at the end, we so at the Any- end we go like next time we'll be discussing, and then we have some kind of like '80s pop culture reference or something okay, like that. Okay, the, the song you want to use is uh, "99 Red Balloons." Next time we'll Ooh. be discussing "99 Red Balloons." Actually, I don't think we've said yeah. that yet. Yeah. 99, 99 yeah. Red Balloons" is yeah. one of my favorite Cold War songs. Uh, that's a yeah. great. That's an absolute classic. I, I don't know. I don't know if you've ever heard the words and what it's all about. Nah, it's no, it's nah, kind of amazing. Loof balloons, yeah, that's right. Yeah, I, yeah. I, I definitely. No, but if, you, if you understand what it's about, oh yeah, it's about the Cold, yeah. War. It's about the Cold War. Yeah. 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 Um. So I'll roll with the intro. Uh, and yeah, yeah. Let's do that. So, okay. Cool. Cool. I like that. This has been the Escalation 1985 podcast. We are a small indie team trying to make the Cold War gone hot, but we need your help. Please support us by going to our website crowdfunding or patreon.com slash escalation1985. Also, thank you to Synthetic Bobka and Voltage for supplying the music for this episode. Please leave us a review on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to this podcast. Next time, we'll be discussing 99 Red Balloons.